Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 97. I hope you're doing well. Today on the show, we are talking to Amber Wood, a Senior Perioperative Practice Specialist, or AORN. At AORN, Amber is the author of several guidelines that affect sterile processing. For instance, high-level disinfection. Now, if you recall in the last podcast, we talked to Sue Klasik, one of your clinical educators here at HSPA, and we talked about the AMBI standards. Well, today, Amber is going to give us a glimpse of the AORN guidelines writing process. She's going to help show us why this is a document that we can trust, that we can rely on to help guide our practices in sterile processing, and then speak to how you can be involved in the process. So it's some great information from our operating room partners. But before we talk to Amber, guess what? Turkey Day is just around the corner. Now, why is that so exciting, you might ask? Well, if you know me at all, Turkey Day not only means good food, it not only means fun with family and friends, But almost more importantly, more importantly than both of those combined, Turkey Day means you get to watch America's favorite football team. How about them Cowboys? That's right. What Turkey Day would be complete without watching the Dallas Cowboys? So I hope that you are able to feast on some turkey, have some fun with friends and family, and watch those boys on this Turkey Day. Well, now that I got your attention, If you do have some time off this Thanksgiving and you do happen to be one of those individuals who are just really tired of watching the Cowboys come up short year after year after year after year and I could go on and on. Maybe if you have some time, just check out some of the HSPA educational opportunities that there are available to you. Now, there are several on-demand webinars available that might just be more productive than the big game. And some of those are the one of the newest, the Conversation with Industry Experts, which highlights reprocessing best practices for high-performing robotic service lines. So if you have a robotic service line in your department, well, here we have an expert panel that discusses best practices with DaVinci Reprocessing. We have a Barry Bryant, who is from North Georgia Medical Center, sharing some successes at his facility. And then we have Marcy Duffy, who is with Intuitive, and she is showing some best practices with DaVinci products. So a great on-demand webinar that uh, you have access to. There are also conversations about water management and sterile processing. You know that all-important ST-108 that has recently hit the shelves, right? So uh, check out those webinars. There's a back-to-school assessing your department's educational system. You know, there's successes and failures in every department. You know, it just depends on the people 
that work in the department. You know, a program that highlights the importance of building and maintaining a strong educational department. Also information on how creating systems that work, you know, developing, implementing systems within your department to help them grow. There's another one on the topic that, uh, you know, SPD is not a career elevator, right? So important things about your future in sterile processing. And last, there's a there's another on-demand webinar about external transportation. You know, if you're not already transporting items in and out of sterile processing off-site facilities, then uh, you might be there in the near future. So check out that on-demand webinar. So besides webinars, on-demand webinars, there are a ton of posters to look at. And these posters are great because they are from individuals just like you. Individuals who have put some time and effort into creating process improvements within their department and then put it on paper or in this case put it on a poster so you can look at so you can evaluate those processes and maybe apply those in your department the poster span from 2014 to 2023 great information go check them out so there are also the tried and true lesson plans in the process so you have the CRCST lesson plan sponsored by 3M Healthcare, the CIS lesson plan sponsored by Asculap, the CER sponsored by Healthmark Industries, and the CHL sponsored by Steris Corporation. You know, those lesson plans always have great information. Check them out. They're on the website. And then last, but certainly not least, you're listening to it now. There are the podcast those podcasts are available. You know, if you've missed some in the past, well, this last one, again, like I said earlier, was Inside Amy's Standards, where we're looking at the standards. Why can we trust the standards? And then the one before that, pasteurization. All the information you want to know about pasteurization. If you don't use it in your department, you might be the expert that needs to know about it in your clinical areas. So check out that podcast. And then there's also podcast number 92, where we talk about boroscopes from Claris Medical and Andy Sutton, where we, you know, he describes boroscopes and what a boroscope program can look like in your department. Some things you should think about when you're implementing a boroscope. And then a real treat, episode 93, we talk about boroscopes and AI technology. It's going to be a game changer. If you don't know about it, if you haven't heard about it, check out that episode, episode 93. It's great. Look for more on AI and boroscopes. So if you're not watching the Cowboys and you're not overcome by the tryptophan, courtesy of the Turkey Day, then check out some of these educational opportunities from HSPA at myhspa.org. All right, like I said earlier, we are talking to Amber Wood, who is a senior perioperative practice specialist at the Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses AORN, where she has served as a lead author and editor for several AORN guidelines. She offers clinical information to members via the AORN consult line and contributes regularly to clinical issues in the column of the AORN journal. She has served as a member of the Association for Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, AMI, the liaison to the CDC Healthcare Infection Control Advisory Committee, HICPAC, 
and is a fellow of the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, APIC. There are several good guidance documents that sterile processing folks refer to when they need help guiding sterile processing practices. And one of those is the AMI standards, but the other is the AORN guidelines. I'm here with Amber Wood, who is a senior perioperative practice specialist. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thanks for having me. So can you give our listeners a brief explanation of the differences between the AMI standards and the AORN guidelines? Sure. So AORN has a position and participates in the AMI standard development, and they have a very well-defined process of a consensus guideline. So there's different things that they do um, to get agreement and consensus on their standards as they develop them. And sometimes there are references in the AMI standards when the committee members who are writing them together um, supply those references. And then for the ARN guidelines, we have a much different way we approach the references. So we actually start with the literature search. And so uh, we start with that. And then we also we score each reference and the quality of the studies. So that's one of the main differences is how we handle the research studies. So there are documents that are written about sterile processing that give guidance to sterile processing practices. But the problem is, it seems like they're from folks who have never really set foot in a sterile processing department and don't really even know what we do in sterile processing. So how can sterile processing folks and perioperative folks rely on or trust the AORN guidelines? That's a great question. So the ARN guidelines are developed by a team. It's not written by one person. We do have a staff person who is the lead who kind of coordinates the document. And then we have a guidelines advisory board. So we have eight ARN members with a diverse experience and background, many of whom are actively directors of sterile processing departments. And so we try to get a good mix of diversity of experience in that group. We also have a patient liaison. And then we have liaisons from professional organizations such as HSPA. So Sue Klasik is your liaison. And so she gives very valuable input on the guideline development. And she's always on our guidelines that are related to sterile processing. And we really look to her and her experience and her wisdom um, when we're developing those. And we have other liaison organizations for the infection control societies. We include APIC and SHEA representatives on our advisory board. We work with the American College of Surgeons, the Surgical Infection Society, and then our anesthesiologist partners, the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. So we have a big group that works together on developing each guideline. So a lead author will put forth the draft and then we get feedback in collaboration from the guidelines advisory board. And then we also work with subject matter experts. Um, For example, when we updated the guideline for flexible endoscopes, we had a subject matter expert, Garland Ray Grisby, who was the co-chair of the Amy ST91, so that we could make sure that we had a good input from experts like Garland involved in the guideline development. Writing guidelines, the whole process of writing or revising is really an extensive process. And I kind of think of it like when we do a manual, like the CRCST manual, it is an extensive process. And most folks 
don't really understand that. They think that, you know, like on TV, somebody's just sitting there typing out something furiously and, you know, out comes the paper and the book and it's all great. Can you walk our listeners through the process of revising a guideline? Sure. So our guidelines are revised on a five-year cycle and we follow the guideline for guidelines. So we have standards that we follow to make sure that we're putting out trustworthy guidelines um, and so we follow several steps. Um, so like I said, so if a guideline's up for revision, it's been five years, it's time to update it. Sometimes we do that ahead of time if we know there's been some big changes in the literature or in the, in the subject matter because we do keep up with it in between revisions. But so that's when we decide we're going to initiate a guideline revision. Or if it's a new guideline that comes from the guideline advisory board and we all decide we want to start it. So that's how it starts. Um, And then we'll develop what is the scope of that guideline going to be. We work with our editor-in-chief to develop uh, the scope of that document. We have a clinical research librarian who helps us build what's going to be our literature search. So she, uh, our research librarian, is also a perioperative nurse. She's our unicorn. Uh, So she really understands clinical um, really well, but she's also an awesome librarian and can find us all the studies and evidence that we need. And so we do have a process to do a systematic literature search. We come up with key terms. She helps us um, in how she does the search terms. And then we review systematically several databases that's required. So we know we have captured all the studies that we can, the best uh, studies that we can that are out there. The lead author will review each one of those results and we'll do kind of a rapid review. Are we going to keep it or not? Um, And then our librarian will get the full text article for us. We read it. We score it. uh, What is the type of study? What is the quality of the study? And then we have a second appraiser who is usually a nurse with a PhD that helps us look at the quality of the study. And then we have to come to a consensus agreement on what is the quality of that research study. And so that's a pretty rigorous process. It takes several months to go through that process. It's actually about half the time of writing the guideline is going through the study. So we'll do that for a couple months, review each study, and we'll kind of let the evidence guide us on what the, you know, recommendations should be. Is there a new, should we add something to the scope of the documents that we're finding in the studies that hasn't previously been a recommendation for practice? So that's when we'll start writing and we kind of synthesize what are all these studies saying? You know, what should we do in practice? What should we take away from this? And so we'll come up with draft recommendations, and then we rate the strength of those recommendations and how strongly we think people should implement them, whether it's a recommendation, you should definitely do it, or it's conditional. It might only be applicable to certain settings or certain situations, or we have no recommendations. And unfortunately, if we don't have any evidence and we can't uh, determine what the benefits and the harms might be, Sometimes we have some recommendations in that category. So we not only look at the studies, which is very rigorous process, but we also consider what are the benefits and harms of implementing this recommendation. And then we also consider what are the resources. So that's something that's been new for us for the past few years is the resource involvement. Um, Especially went through this with flexible endoscopes and thinking about implementing certain things like single use scopes. We know that that's really resource intensive. So we included cost analysis studies and we wrote that up in the rationale and we talked about what the different resources would be involved there. And so we just try to write that all up in our rationale to let the reader know why we came to the recommendation that we did. 
and to give them the information that they need. So we do the heavy lifting to try to gather everything together for you to help you make a decision about how you're gonna implement that recommendation. And so we do have an evidence table that we write up uh, each study and what was the intervention, what was the findings, and what was the quality of the study. We have that table that is available on our website. So we publish that publicly. You don't have to buy the guidelines to see that. Uh, it's just on the erring guidelines on the website, you'll see evidence model, and then we'll see Prisma information. Prisma is just the reporting of the research studies and um, the number of studies we included and where we got them from. We have a really detailed uh, literature search strategy that our librarian puts together to help folks if they want to duplicate our literature searches, if they want to have their librarian duplicate that search, we put all that information out on the website. That's part of our trying to be transparent and following best practices for guideline development. So um, once we got a draft done and we've got all those recommendations made, we put the document, it goes to our guidelines advisory board. We have our team who's assigned to that guideline reviews it and gives feedback. We put it over public comment. Uh, and so that's when the public, anyone can go in and comment. And we put that up on our website. You don't have to be a member to comment. We really just want feedback from everyone. So we do that for at least 30 days. And then we reconcile those public comments. We make you know, a decision whether or not we're gonna include it or if we need to make some changes. And then after we've made those changes, there's several rounds of editing that I haven't mentioned here, but it goes to a publications editor many times throughout this process. And we submit it to our guidelines advisory board for a ballot and they will vote whether they approve the document or not. And then that's where we move forward with publication and educating folks on the guideline recommendations. So it's, it's a lengthy process. Yeah, it sounds like it, it's really involved. It's not, it's not just a, a quick and simple process. And you know, it sounds like that process is what makes the guidelines reliable. Yes, we definitely try to follow a defined process and to have as much transparency as we can. So you kind of talked about the public comments. Is, is there opportunities for stale processing folks who are listening on the call today to have input on the guidelines that is up for a revision? Absolutely. So when we put guidelines up for public comment, we send a notice out to our membership and through an email. And we also put a banner across our website at AORN.org right up top. Um, and if you also want to just flag that page, it'll tell you uh, if you just search public commenting on our website, you'll come to the landing page. And that's where we post when guidelines are up for public comment. Usually it'll say when there's something coming up. Um, and so there's usually a big flurry of guidelines kind of in the summer, in the spring, in the summertime. So um, like we have a guideline coming up for public commenting on sterile technique. Um, and so the next guideline for sterile processing that'll be up will probably be coming out in May or June. And so we also let our, our liaisons know when that's coming up and we try to get the word out as much as we can. And so you can go to the website. It does have you log in. And so some people think that means you have to be a member and it does not. We just want to capture what's your name, what's your contact info, because sometimes we do follow up and ask follow up questions of the public commenters. If we're not sure about what your comment means or we need some more context, uh, we will reach out. So that's all we ask is just for some contact information. And then you can actually just see the guideline and it's really easy to use. We've got some instructions on the website. Uh, you just kind of click and put your comments in. It helps if you've got some supporting evidence or you've got something you explain your reasoning and put a suggestion. So sometimes we get people just 
oh, I don't like this. Well, what don't you like about it? How could it be better? So we always encourage people to just type out what you would like it to say and give us your reasoning so that we can understand because each uh, time we go through these comments, uh, the lead author and the editor-in-chief will sit down, we'll read every single comment. Um, They all carry a lot of importance and weight. We give time for each comment and then we will make a decision whether or not we're going to take it just exactly as is, or maybe we're going to accept it in theory, but we might have to make some modifications to put it into ARN style and our writing style for our editors. Um, or, you know, if we're going to reject it, we write out the reason and we send this list of all of our recommendations and what we're going to accept or reject with our guidelines advisory board. And we also have discussions with them in our monthly meetings and let them know what was coming up, what was something controversial, you know, are we going to, what do they want to do about it? Um, so we definitely have, um, those comments are very important and they do impact change on the guidelines and we absolutely welcome them. Yeah. It sounds like you give value to each comment. And so it sounds like the sterile processing folks should be involved in that process because you're actually going to look at it, you know, evaluate the comment and and take action where it needs Yeah, many times when we write recommendations, we're maybe thinking about a specific situation and we don't realize how maybe in practice that might be interpreted and put in a different situation that we didn't intend and maybe have unintended consequences from what we meant. And so it's really a valuable time to help us weed those things out. And maybe sometimes we need to be more clear of our intentions to help uh, prevent that. So it's, it's really important part of the process. Hey, let's pause our conversation for just a second. So are you looking to get a CE for this episode? Well, you're in the right place. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to your MyHSPA website, and make sure you use the code DallasCowboys. Again, the code for this episode is DallasCowboys. Now, back to our conversation. So last question, are there any other ways that sterile processing folks can be involved in the guidelines process? Absolutely. So we love to have involvement. Um, If you want to be on the guidelines advisory board, uh, that involves going through the AORN, um, being a member of AORN, and there is an application, a willingness to serve form. And so uh, we do review those. So if you're interested in going that route, um, it's absolutely open to you. Um, You're you're welcome to uh, go that route. And then also uh, participating through HSPA and your liaison. You already have that membership with HSPA. You already have a liaison, Sue Klasik, you know, working with her. And she, I know she's really awesome about sending out education and uh, information about the guidelines. And she writes up what all was involved in an update and puts that in the process magazine. She presents it at conference. And we're so grateful for her and the great communication she has. So definitely connect with her. Um, and see, you know, how you can be involved on the HSPA side. And so absolutely. And then submitting public comments is just so important. We also welcome direct feedback. Our AORN members have a consult line that they can call and talk to the authors. Um, And so if you want to call us and ask us questions, we absolutely welcome feedback and, and want to know how it's going in practice, how implementation of the guidelines is going and any suggestions. So the time to do that is the best time to do that is public comment when you can make a change. If we're in between guideline revisions, we may not be able to make a change, but uh, we absolutely still welcome the feedback. We file it away and we um, update it when we're able to. And then another thing 
that is really important that we need more research. So sterile processing folks can get involved in the research, publish what you're finding in your practice, and uh, let us know so then we do our literature search. If you have a study, please send it to us and we'll make sure that we review it and include it in our revisions. And so we, like I said, we do the literature search, but if you really have a publication and we only accept peer-reviewed journal publications, we definitely want to review it and see about including it. So please participate in publishing what you do. You have so much experience in practice and implementation, and nobody else is going to know what you did or what your successes were if you don't publish it. And so please share what your learning is. And um, AORN Ashla has a nursing research page on our website where we post evidence gaps. And so each year we update the guideline, we will put what the research priorities are and what gaps we found when we did our literature search. So you can just search research priorities on the AORN website. You can find that list. So just for an example, we haven't updated it quite yet, but I just updated the guideline for high-level disinfection. And some of the priorities we found is, you know, we need more information about the role of ultrasound probes and whether or not it's causing infections, because we just have a lot of unknowns about processing those and the levels of processing. Another thing is interventions to address the barriers to compliance with our high-level disinfectant use, like the concentration testing, because we know that we have issues with compliance there. So if you've got some strategies to address compliance issues, we definitely want to see research on that. We've seen research on droplets and how far they travel from the decontamination sink. We've seen five feet, we've seen seven feet. You know, how many feet is it? What can we do? What interventions can we implement to minimize that distance? So we definitely want to continue seeing research in that area. And then ergonomics. You guys uh, working in sterile processing, you know it can be really uncomfortable with the PPE and the manual processes. And so we want to improve ergonomics. So if you've got solutions on improving ergonomics, we want to see published studies on what you've done, how you've improved ergonomics. So those are just some of the things, some of the highlights, what we need to see research on. So that is a direct way to influence guideline development. Great. So thank you for sharing with us today. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate what you do uh, for sterile processing through the AORN guidelines. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, that music means only one thing. And I'm sorry to say that we are out of time for today. Thank you, Amber, for sharing with us today. If you would like more information on AORN, or if you have questions, just want to find out more about it, you can always contact AORN on the AORN website. They would be happy to help. HSPA episode number 97 is in the books, so we're done for today. Thanks for sticking with us. Just so you know, each of these episodes are on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. Whether you're a Cowboy fan or not, I wish you, I wish your family a happy Turkey Day. As always, stay classy and we'll see you next time.